Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. We try to engage the different senses in our reflection on suffering. One that we have not engaged so far is music. And it's time to do that. I'm going to play for you a piece of music called Barbara's Adagio for Strings. I just want you to listen. I'm going to pause it from time to time just to ask you some questions about it to help you engage in it. First question, is this a happy or a sad song? Don't answer, just keep that inside. That's simple, but we gotta start out simple. This, you know, music for dummies. I'm a dummy, somebody had to walk me through this. There's your first pause. You notice the music paused. What's going on there? Notice it's intensifying. It's the same theme, but it's intensifying. notice the music pauses again. It's not just that I paused it. There's an actual pause there in, in, the, in the score. But now I want to ask you this question. Is this one person or is it two people? Just listen. 
pauses again to pick up steam. Notice how it's intensifying. One person or two? Most people are saying two. I think this is two people. And I think one of them is suffering and the other one is watching them and experiencing sympathetic pains. So listen now and see if you can hear the one and the other and how their hearts reflect one another. because one of them is dead. But listen to what happens to the other one now. And ask yourself, does this end on a happy note or a sad note? This is the living person remembering the suffering of the dead person and letting it wash over them 
again. But what's the key? So just, I mean, technically, major or minor, what's the key? What if that's the story of Jesus and Mary? Look it up sometime. It's called Barbara's Adagio for Strings. I first learned to hear it because they would play that every Good Friday at the Cathedral of St. Cecilia in Omaha, Nebraska, the only cathedral named for the patroness of music. And if you listen through it, I contend I'm not sure Samuel Barber wrote it this way, but I contend that it is the story of the way of the cross told from Mary's perspective. Give it a listen. Every story should have a soundtrack. That's one of the primary soundtracks of suffering. Okay, let's go back to your tables. Okay, then I want to start with this. This is going to be our opening quote of the day. This is from John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. What do you think of that? I mean, that's a little calloused, isn't it? That's not much better than the disciples comes across. Like, sounds like to me, Jesus, what you're saying is, I made him blind so that I could heal him. Won't this be fun? That's not what he's saying. So we need to understand that Jesus is challenging and overturning the common assumption of Israel. In order to understand what Jesus is saying there, you have to know where Israel is coming from and where Jesus is trying to get them. So I want to walk you through a stair-stepped exercise here. I want to show you a series of things that happened in Israel. This is phase one. This is the beginning of their history. And you can tag this with, there are always two things going on with Israel. It's events and people. Okay? 
And the first person here is Abraham. Why does God call Abraham? Don't know? Afraid to say? He calls him to be the father of many nations. Was it because Abraham was a particularly good dude? No evidence of that. Maybe he was a good dude, but it doesn't say Abraham was chosen because he was more righteous than anyone else. Abraham was chosen because God chose him. Israel, at the time of the Exodus, why does God free them? Because they're particularly faithful to him? He frees them because they're his people. Right? And he promised he would take care of them. In fact, their whole history works this way from the beginning. Why does God choose them? Why does God free them? Why does God provide land for them? What are the four promises that God makes to Abraham? Whoa, okay, we need to become better Bible thumpers. <laughs> okay. Children, as many as the stars. There's an interesting story about that. When he says to Abraham, by the way, go out and count the stars if you can. Even so shall your children be. What time of day is it? It's daytime, actually. It's nighttime, right? We always picture that at nighttime. But if you read the story, God makes this promise to Abraham, go out and count the stars if you can. Even so shall your descendants be. And then 15 verses later, the sun goes down. How many stars could Abraham see in the middle of the day? How many were there? Countless. He could only see one, but there were countless stars there. And how many descendants did he see? That'd be one. I mean, discounting Ishmael for a moment. <laughs> Isaac was the son of promise. Okay? So just that's interesting. But he did. He promised him. Descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea, uh, the sands of the seashore. And land, a land of their own. They will have a land. And how much land does Abraham have by the time he dies? Uh, he does own at that point one grave. That's it. They sell him the cave of Machpelah so he can bury Sarah there. That's it. And they charge him an exorbitant price for it, too. Hey, what is 300 pieces of silver between you and I? This was their way of bargaining. Okay. And? Royalty? Yes. You'll be a great nation. Right? Land of their own and a great nation. And all the people will be blessed through you. He gives them these promises. He just lays them out there. And actually, Israel's history is the progressive realization of these promises. The first, like, 800 years of their history, these things all successively come true. How many people go into Egypt? So you get Abraham, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob. Jacob has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and they have 12 children. And all of their children go into Egypt. That would be about 70 people. How many come out of Egypt? A lot. 700,000 men of fighting age. Well, then how many women and children went along with that? That's like 2 million people. 400 years, 
70 to 200 to 2 million people. That's a lot. Okay? So, first of all, lots of descendants. And then they get the land. How long does it take them to get the land? Well, there was that 40 years wandering in the desert, plus the 400 intervening years, so a long time, they get the land. And then they conquer all the people, and that takes a little while, right? Because the whole book of Judges is about all conquering the surrounding tribes. And then David comes along, and they become a great nation. And at this point, they're thinking, look, all the promises have come true. This is all phase one. Now, there's a point in the 700s where Assyria comes and wipes out the northern tribes. Now, remember, at this point, after the time of David, David has Solomon, and Solomon has this fabulous kingdom. You know how you build a fabulous kingdom? Tax and spend. <laughs> Solomon was famous for taxing and spending, right? Because when they go to Samuel and say, Samuel, we want you to appoint us a king. Samuel says, this is not a good idea. God is your king. Yeah, but we want a king. We want to be just like other nations. And he says, this is not a good idea. I'm going to tell you what. If you do this, here are all the things that are going to happen. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your produce. You know what Samuel is describing? Everything that Solomon did. Then when Solomon dies, the leaders of Israel come to his son, Rehoboam, and say, Rehoboam, here's the deal, dude. We very much want to follow you. Great appreciation for your dad and all he did. We need to ease up on the tax and spend thing a little bit. Just, just make our lives a little easier, okay? And Rehoboam says, I'm going to think about that overnight. I'm going to come back and give you my answer tomorrow. Very good, very good. He comes back tomorrow. You know what he says? Like, okay, that's a reasonable thing. Let's work together. He says, you think my father was tough. My little finger is thicker than my father's body. What he's saying to them is, you thought my father could tax and spend. Where do you see how I put you under my boot? And you know what happens as a result? The ten northern tribes break off from Rehoboam. They're like, we're out of here. We secede from the Union, okay? See you later. And from that time on, there are two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The only problem is the Assyrians come along in the 700s, and they wipe out all the northern tribes. And the northern tribes go along with it. The Assyrians move Assyrians into that area. The Jews sort of culturally assimilate in order to get along and not be wiped out. And those are the Samaritans of the New Testament. That's why they're so hated. Because they are foreigners and they're people who collaborated with foreigners and polluted the purity of Israel's faith while Judah stayed faithful. Okay. So this is all going on. Now, here's the deal, though. Israel, Assyria comes in and they wipe out the north and they come right up to the gates of Jerusalem. And the people are thinking, are the people thinking the promises are threatened? Not exactly. Here's what happens. They come right up there. And this is in uh, 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's a lovely story. And just find 2 Kings back here in the Deuteronomistic history. 1 Kings, 2 Kings... 2 Kings 18 and 19. There we go. This is cool. 18, 19, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Isaiah, punishment of Zennacherib. Oh, here it is. Ooh, okay, so 
the Assyrians come up to the gate and they start shouting at the people in Jerusalem on the walls in Hebrew so everyone can hear the threats that they're making. We're going to come in there, we're going to take your stuff, we're going to kill your women, we're going to kill your children, you're all going to be slaves. And the leaders say, um, could, could you speak in Assyrian, please? Because we're all fluent in Assyrian, so we don't need to hear you speaking in Hebrew right now. Don't upset the people. And so they keep shouting at them, right? And so this is it. Judah is about to be wiped out. And then it says, that night the angel of the Lord went forth and struck down 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Early the next morning, there they were, all the corpses of the dead. So Zanacharib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and went back to Nineveh. How did this happen? Were these people particularly faithful to God? No, they were not, because the prophets had been coming to tell them, you need to shape up or God's going to have his revenge. What just happened? They didn't do anything, and God went and wiped out their enemies. Why did God wipe out their enemies? Because God is always faithful to his promises. And their history shows that. All of the people and all of the events conspire to prove that to them in phase one of their existence. Israel at this point is like an infant. God simply does everything for Israel and expects nothing in return. Before we move to phase two, this actually repeats itself in 597. In 597, who comes to the gates? The Babylonians come to the gates. 597, they come to the gates. You know what the people do? They go and pray before Yahweh? No. They march around the temple going, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. <laughs> Why are they doing this? Jeremiah covers this. Jeremiah 7. He says, don't be chanting the temple of Yahweh as you walk around the temple. Repent. Well, repent doesn't make any sense to them. Why not? Because their entire history, God has come through for them no matter what. God made the promises. God delivers on the promises. That's God's thing. It doesn't have anything to do with our faithfulness. And so in 597, they get wiped out. <laughs> the Babylonians come right in and they wipe out the Israelites and Judah. Right? And in 587, they come back and they wipe them out again. And they destroy the temple. And they take all the leaders away. And they set all the Babylonians in there. And the people are saying, what happened? Well, what did happen? What happened in the meantime, Israel, was you started to grow up. You're not an infant anymore. And so this relationship is starting to become a sort of two-way street. It's not a perfect two-way street, but you have chores to do. Y'all have not done your chores. Y'all have not been faithful to Yahweh in return. And when did the prophets come and start to bring them that message? Oh, long about 800, 700 B.C. when the north got wiped out. And that was a warning shot to Judah and Jerusalem. And they didn't heed the warning. So in 587, we enter phase two of Israel's relationship with God. Phase two is a two-way street. And the people that are associated with this and the events are, one, Josiah. Josiah the king in 621 discovers in the temple a new scroll of the law. And the new scroll of the law is the book of Deuteronomy. This, look, this is going somewhere, I promise you. 
I don't know, it's sort of interesting in and of itself, but it's coming back to John 9. They're BC. These are all BC years. That's why I'm running them the other way. Okay. Sorry about that. Just slipped into professor speak. <laughs> I had to translate a little bit. Okay. So 621 BC, they discover a new scroll of the law in the basement of the temple. It had been forgotten, and they bring it out, and it's the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy says, listen, Israel, your relationship with God is a two-way street. He did these things for you, and now he expects you to be faithful in return. And so if you are not, sin will be punished in your lifetime. Virtue will be rewarded in your lifetime. So that's simply written down in the book of Deuteronomy. And Josiah goes, oh, we're in a lot of trouble because we have not been faithful to this. So Josiah institutes a reform movement along with Jeremiah. Only it's too little, too late. And they think about, didn't the prophets come with this message? Amos, Hosea, Isaiah. All the prophets started coming with these messages in the 800s and the 700s. In fact, they went to the northern tribes and said, listen, unless you shape up, God's going to punish you. And they didn't shape up, and God punished them. In fact, they got laughed at, the prophets in the north. They said, what are you talking about? We're a prosperous nation right now. We must be being faithful. But they weren't. You go back and look at the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is written in light of all this. And Israel's fortunes rise and fall with their fidelity. And if you go back and look at what was happening, why did they spend 40 years in the desert? They spent 40 years in the desert because they were unfaithful. See, all those things had happened, and Israel hadn't realized that they happened. So Israel, at this point, goes back and they rewrite their history in light of the exile. Because there are only two options at this point. Either the exile happened because Yahweh got conquered by the gods of Babylon. In which case, why be Jewish? Right? If Yahweh was conquered, that means the gods of Babylon are stronger. So just let it go. But no, that's not what happened. They realize, no, no. Yahweh wasn't conquered by the gods of Babylon. Yahweh is punishing us through Babylon for our infidelity. And so during the exile, what happens is there's this tremendous time of renewal. This is the point at which the law gets written down. Why does the law get written down now? Well, we need to know what it means exactly to be faithful to Yahweh. Excuse me, sir, is this going to be on the test? Because if it is, I'm going to write it down. And if it's not, I'm not going to pay attention. So they write it down in exact detail. We know now what we have to do. We have to do these things to be faithful to Yahweh. So they write it down. They become faithful to the law. And what happens? Well, what should happen if their theory is right? Actually, so this is like a theological scientific test. They have this new theory that we've entered a new phase in our relationship with Yahweh. And this new phase is not just he makes promises and he fulfills them. He did that in our infancy. Now that we're growing up, we need to do some work here. Sin gets punished. Virtue gets rewarded. We were sinful, therefore we were punished by the Babylonians. By the way, 
if God punished us through the Babylonians, and he punished us through the Egyptians, and then all through the book of Judges, he punished us with the Philistines and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and so on and so forth, what happens to the gods of all those countries? They're gone. There are no gods of those countries. There's only one God. It's Yahweh pulling all the strings of history. And that is, in fact, the point at which they become monotheistic. So anyways, back to the story. If this is their theory and they're putting it to the test, what should happen? Sin gets punished. That's happened. It happened to the north. Now it happened to the south. Virtue gets rewarded. We have been now following the law in exile. What should happen? We should be rewarded. We should be freed. And God should show us that there are no gods of other nations. He should show us this in a new way. And all of a sudden, bang, here comes Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Persian marches in, destroys Babylon, and frees the Israelites. Yeah, astonishing. Not only does he free them, he says, you know what? I want you to go back to your homeland and rebuild the temple. And by the way, here's money to do it. Why would you do that? That's an interesting political calculation, right? That's a great way to get all those people on your side. It's an excellent political calculation. They don't see it that way. They see that as God working through Cyrus. In fact, Cyrus is the first one ever called Messiah, which in Hebrew means anointed. Cyrus is anointed by God to free God's people from the Babylonian captivity. This is phase two of their existence. They've entered their adolescence. That's interesting. So that goes along for quite a while. And in fact, this phase two is what you hear the disciples asking Jesus about. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're still in that phase of understanding. Sin leads to punishment. Virtue leads to reward. This man is clearly being punished. Somebody must have sinned. And what does Jesus say? Try again. Survey says. It's not up there on the board. Okay. Well, then Jesus, what is up there on the board? And he says this thing about, so that the works of God may be made visible. He's just saying to them, there's something else going on. I want to teach you something new. So phase three of their history begins after the Babylonian exile. So they learn this lesson. And this, by the way, is when they write the creation account as well, because they realize that there is no God but God. Phase three begins after this. Israel itself is, they know they have to be faithful to the law. So they're faithful to the law, and then they get conquered. Right? So they live under the Persians, and then they live under the Greeks, and then they live under the Hasmoneans, and then they revolt for, under the Hasmoneans, and then they live under the Romans. And Are they being faithful to the law? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And when they're faithful to the law, are they freed? Uh, not so much. And when they're not faithful to the law, are they punished? Uh, not so much. Their fortunes rise and fall, and it apparently has nothing to do with whether or not they're being faithful. And you know who's most characteristic of this phase? 
That would be Job. This is when Job becomes an important book for them. Because Job is a person. I think Job is probably a person. But Job is not only a person. Job is also a symbol of all that Israel is experiencing at this point. And what are they learning from Job? What sins did Job commit? None. He was perfectly righteous. And yet he was hammered. And his friends all come to him and what do they say? Job, what sins did you commit? I didn't commit any sins. Oh, surely you're mistaken because you are being punished, sir. You must have committed sins. What does God come and say to them later? Oh, y'all, I'm calling you on the carpet. You shall be going to hell unless Job intercedes for you for all the bad counsel you gave him. The whole book of Job upends that. Do they hear that lesson? Not really, otherwise the disciples wouldn't have asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. You know where it reaches its peak? Not just Job, but the seven brothers in the book of Maccabees. The seven brothers who refused to eat pork in violation of God's law, as a result of which they are rewarded fabulously? They are tortured to death, one after the other, in sight of their mother. Where is God's faithfulness now? Virtue is supposed to be rewarded. Sin is supposed to be punished. But what we see is these seven brothers, who were faithful to God's law, are tortured to death. And the people who are doing it, killing them, are living fabulously. What lesson do we take from that? What lesson do they take from that? This is when it comes up as a question. Did Jews believe in an afterlife? Not so much. From the earliest times, they didn't. You became a shadow, and that was it. You're done. Your time is up. This is how that became a question for them. Wait, we know from phase one that God will always be faithful to his promises. We know from phase two that virtue is rewarded and sin is punished. What we're seeing in phase three is that the virtuous are being killed and the sinful are being rewarded. So how is God going to be faithful to his promises when they're dead? Unless there's an afterlife. And the book of Maccabees raises the possibility. In fact, the brothers start talking about this. It's an asymmetric conception of the afterlife because what they say is, they're going to cut off the kid's hands. And he says, God gave me these hands. I freely give them up for the sake of his law. I hope to receive them back again in eternal life. Cut them off. Bang. You know, that still happens today, right? That's not just an Old Testament reality. That's happening in the Middle East. So they're starting to ask the question, wait, if we know God is faithful, we know these things, so is there an afterlife? What's the position at the time of Jesus? Is there an afterlife or not? 
debated. This is the point. In fact, Paul starts a riot this way, right? Paul gets captured, and he's about to come on trial before the Roman magistrates, and he looks out, and he sees some Pharisees and some Sadducees, and he says, hmm, my brothers, I am on trial for belief in the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees and Sadducees start fighting one another. And the Roman governor says, oh, man, I've got to get this guy out of here. That's just their fight. Okay? It was very savvy what he did. It was a debate. The Sadducees didn't believe in it. The Pharisees were willing to debate it. Okay? Because the Sadducees only read the first five books of the law, and they only read them literally. Whereas the Pharisees were willing to admit the rest of the books, and they were willing to do a figurative interpretation. Right? So when they bring to Jesus the question about the woman who married seven brothers and then she died, and in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They're asking him, look, I know you believe in the resurrection, but if you believe in the resurrection, it leads to these ridiculous consequences. So how do you answer this? They're backing him into a corner. And what does he say? Is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For in the resurrection, they're not given and taken in marriage. It's not going to be like that. But wait, Jesus, we had this other question about whether there's a resurrection at all. And so he says to them, as for the dead being raised, did you not read in the books of Moses when God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What did he just do? These guys only read the first five books of the law, and they only read it literally. So he went back to the first five books of the law, and he said, let me give you a scripture passage here. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says that to Moses. And if you read that literally, it means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Otherwise, he would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they're dead, so now I'm your God. He says, I am. Jesus says to them, you're quite mistaken. That was wicked. Right? He cited the sources that they believed in and the methodology of interpretation that they believed in to overturn them. Lovely. So he does that. This is the third phase. Right? It creates a question. What's going on here? How will God be faithful? This is past adolescence, isn't it? This is when you get into adulthood and life doesn't all make sense anymore because your parents aren't there to protect you and things get messy and they don't always work out. And God is saying to Israel, yeah, it's time to grow up. And it's not always going to be clean. So it's into that situation that God sends the answer to the question in the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't just, boom, resurrect Jesus out of nothing. He waited till they had the question in history. And then once they had the question, he supplied the answer to them. Because if he had supplied the answer before they had the question, they wouldn't have cared. Okay? So Jesus comes into that situation. So that's here. Well, what's going on here? Phase four. This is Jesus. He fulfills it all. He says, yes, God will always be faithful to his promises. Yes, virtue will be rewarded and sin will be punished. Yes, sometimes in this life, the righteous will suffer, but I guarantee you, I have the last word. 
They will be raised from the dead, and the virtuous will be rewarded, and the sinful will be punished. Maybe not in this life, but in the next. Well, that answers the question about the resurrection. But it also reveals a template about suffering and what God wants for his people. So it can layer on top of this several things. For example, God starts with the people and they're in a situation of polytheism. Well, let's, let's erase that. Down here, what he's teaching them is monolatry. You shall worship only one God. And here, what he's teaching them is monotheism. By the way, when I said you should worship only one God, that's because there is only one. And lastly, here, teaches them the Trinity. Down here, he teaches them an eye for an eye. Up here, he teaches them turn the other cheek. The Catechism says in paragraph 53 that God reveals himself to man gradually. Paragraph, uh, the Catechism says again in paragraph 287 that God reveals the truth about creation gradually. Catechism says in paragraph 684 that God reveals the truth of the Trinity gradually. Catechism says in paragraph 992 that God reveals the truth about the resurrection gradually. Catechism says in paragraph 2607 that Jesus teaches the truth about prayer gradually. We don't really think about that, do we? Well, maybe God revealed the truth about suffering gradually. So when you look at a passage that was written about this time period, in this time period, you're not going to see the full truth about suffering. You're only going to see a piece of it. When you look at something that was written about this time period, in this time period, you're not going to see the full truth about suffering. You're only going to see a piece of it. Same thing here. You're only going to see a piece of it. Because God is assembling these things step by step. So you kind of reconstruct these things and you start to think, wait, the elements of a deeper theology of suffering were there all along. Because back here, we had the story of Abel. Why did Abel die? Uh, because his brother killed him. Why did his brother kill him? Because he was jealous. What did Abel do wrong? Nothing. He offered a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, and he was killed for it. Who does that sound like? Back down here. Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Sold into slavery. A bit clueless, I'll admit. Okay? Certainly offended his brothers. But not for any sin against God was he sold into slavery. Left for dead rose from the dead and came back to save his brothers who had intended to kill him. And what does Joseph say to them? 
because they figure they're in for it now, right? He's second in command, and he could have them killed for trying to kill him. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Does God want his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery? No, because that's wrong. But does God let it happen? He does. Does God let it happen in order to bring something better out of it? I don't think so. God lets it happen. Because he puts things in our power. And then he says, so I'm going to work with whatever you give me here. And this is what Joseph's brothers give to God. And he says, that's what you're going to give to me? All right, I'll work with that. What did Adam and Eve give to God? Not fidelity. God says, so that's what you're going to give me? All right, I'll work with that. Joseph, I'll work with that. Job. Job suffers for no sins. It's all about a test in Job. Will he stay in the right posture before God? Does Job stay in the right posture before God? For the first three quarters of the book of Job, he stays in the right posture before God. And then finally, he just gets worn down. And he calls God into the dock and says, you have to answer me. And God comes down and says, I don't have to answer you. Were you there when I created Leviathan? Have you measured the heavens? What kind of answer is that, by the way? It's not an answer at all. He's just putting Job back in his place. Right? And what does Job say at that point? Sorry, got out of my lane. I will get back in my lane. I opened my mouth once. I will not do so again. I place my hand over my mouth. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Job gets back in the right place. What did Jesus do? That's the difference. Jesus never got out of his lane. How far did they push him? They pushed him all the way. And he never got out of his lane. You see, man and woman were created because we're amphibians. We're partly in the spiritual world and partly in the physical world. And so we are to gather up all of physical creation and offer it as a spiritual sacrifice to God. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. They didn't do it. So God had to pick a nation to do it, a priestly nation. And how did Israel do? They do the job, bring it all in, and offer it not so much. So God had to choose a particular tribe within Israel to do it. And how do they do? I bring it all in and offer it up, not so much. So God had to recreate the church on the foundation of the 12 apostles. And they did a better job. But it was Jesus who started it out. He gathered all of creation, east and west, all of the material world, into his body and offered it up. So the cross was not just a Roman instrument of execution. It's also a symbol of how do you gather everything in material creation from the horizontal axis and place it on the vertical axis and bring it up. He did that. Maybe in doing that, he taught us something about suffering. So when you look at these guys and the brothers Maccabees, 
you see the individual elements of Christ are all there, but they're only there one by one. None of them represents the fullness. Jesus brings all of that and reconciles them in his body. By the way, what does Abraham say to Isaac? Oh, I left out Isaac. How could I do that? So sorry. Here you go, left out Isaac. What did Isaac do? Oh, this is important. Isaac, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your only son, your beloved, and offer him as a sacrifice on a height that I will point out to you. So they go a three days journey to Mount Moriah, where Isaac shoulders the wood for the sacrifice and carries it up to the place of Holocaust. And he turns to his father and says, Father, here is the wood, here is the fire, where is the lamb? And Abraham says to him, God himself will supply the lamb. And then when Abraham's hand is stayed, when he's about to sacrifice Isaac, he turns around in the thicket and what does he see? Not a lamb, but a ram. Where's the lamb? God was supposed to supply the lamb. There is no lamb, there's a ram. And so begins Israel's search for the lamb that God will supply for the sacrifice. And so when Jesus is walking along and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, everybody knows what that means. Here is the Lamb at last. The Lamb that God himself will supply for the sacrifice. And isn't it fitting that God would offer his only and beloved son? What he did not require Abraham to go through with, he will do himself. What's the point? Well, now, okay, what ha what's happening in John 9? Let's go back to John 9. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, that's not how it is, because that's not right. You all are still living back here. But I want to show you something else. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. There's something else going on here. That The suffering is meant for something, and I'm going to, I'm not going to answer that for you right now. So he makes this cryptic statement. It's so that the works of God might be made visible. What does that mean? Well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. So I'm just going to have to show you how this works. And that's what he does. He shows them how it works. Jesus is challenging the common understanding of the time. And he's saying, no, there's, there's something deeper going on here. And then he shows them the deeper thing in his own life. The point is this. When you understand the trajectory of where they're coming from beforehand, and the trajectory of where Jesus is trying to get them, then you have a much richer sense of what he means when he says these things in the middle. He says something there, but he's shooting them toward his own cross. Okay? One last step in this. So all of this is the time of foreshadowing. Just little individual elements of Jesus are coming into play.
this is the time of fulfillment. But wait a minute, anybody who knows anything about time knows that that's incomplete. Because what I have represented there are only two dimensions of time at the time of Jesus. The past and the present, what's missing? The future. So what is this time frame? What's supposed to happen here on this trajectory? Foreshadow, fulfill. What's that? I didn't hear it. Repent. Repent. No, no, no. That's a good try. If you were to turn in the catechism to paragraph 521, my favorite paragraph in the catechism, it would say this. Christ enables us to live in him all that he himself lived, and he lives it in us. We are called only to become one with him, for he enables us, as the members of his body, to share in what he lived for us in his flesh as our model. We must continue to accomplish in ourselves the stages of Jesus' life and his mysteries, and often beg him to perfect and realize them in us and in his whole church. For it is the plan of the Son of God to make us partake in his mysteries and extend them to and continue them in us and in his whole church. This is his plan for fulfilling his mysteries in us. We re-echo what Jesus himself fulfilled. That is his plan. Benedict XVI asked this question. He said, uh, he said so did, did Jesus intend to found a church? That was the question in the 80s. Some people were saying, Jesus never intended to found a church. And Benedict XVI says, the question of whether Jesus intended to found a church is a false question, and it's false because it's ahistorical. It has no sense of history. The question is, did Jesus intend to abolish the people of God or renew it? And when you put the question that way, the answer is obvious. God does not create and then annihilate. He doesn't create and abolish. He deepens. And that's what he did with the people of God. The people of God were outside of God. And what he did was he made them members of his own body. That they might live his life again in their own lives. So what happens when you pray the mysteries of the rosary? And you're thumbing along. You're not just recalling what happened to Jesus. You're setting up a template for living your own life. You are called to live those mysteries more deeply. Because Jesus in his own life fulfills everything that came before him. There's nothing else to be done except one thing. Why do we believe that Jesus is the fullness of revelation? I mean, there are three persons in the Trinity. Who's to say there aren't seven persons in the Trinity? And we just haven't learned about the other four yet. And the answer to that question is, but time out. God has become a human being that men and women might be united with God. 
What else is there to be done? That's it. Qualitatively, that's the end of the game. God, the church fathers would say, God has become man that men might become gods. That's the deal. And even in Hinduism, that's true. That's the end of the game. So to re-echo, that's us. That's our part in the plan. Place ourselves, and that places us in relation to the entire sweep of salvation history. God dealt with Israel one step at a time. Has God dealt with you one step at a time? And is probably continuing to do so. Work with him, and where is he going to bring you? I had a Muslim student once. She said, wait, so let me get this straight. I'm supposed to keep cooperating with God's grace in my life, and what, maybe when I'm like 80 years old, I'll finally be perfected? That seems like a long time and a lot of work. And I just said, yeah, and wouldn't it be worth it? She's rising to the challenge. See, because I knew where her heart was. She was that kind of person. She wanted that challenge. She didn't want to cop out. So what about us? By the way, Poland, I am told by those who know better than I, Poland considers itself Christ incarnated in a national history. Think about the history of Poland. Has Poland relived the mysteries of Christ's life? Mm, they kind of have, haven't they? Why, why, riddle me this. Why were the Russians more afraid of a Polish pope than of a German pope? They were, by the way. They were terrified of John Paul II. They were not worried about Benedict XVI. Because German aggression toward Russia had always been open. But Polish aggression toward Russia had always been underground. And the Russians had never conquered the Poles in that sense. They managed to live, even in the midst of their crucifixion. Makes them uniquely powerful. Okay. All right. Enough of that. That took longer than I thought it would. But it's something I want you to know. All right, let's do this. All right. Following up on, so last time, the first day we did just the logic of the problem of evil. And I suggested there might be a problem in our conception of power. Last time we looked at the logic of free will, the logic of love. That if God wants there to be love, he has to make us free. If he makes us free, there are certain risks that we might reject him. God gives us a hand in shaping our own history. So we move to this next step, the logic of love, part two, free process. We begin with scripture, Romans 8. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that sees for itself is not hope, for who hopes for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with endurance. This sets up a parallel and a link between us and the cosmos that's important to understand. So just imagine that you are placed within a robot. We put an exoskeleton on you. And I control the robot. Now answer me the question, are you free? Yes? To do what? You can think about stuff. That's good. You can perceive everything that's going on. You could submit to my will freely, or you can just stand there and take it. But the fact of the matter is, you have theoretical free will. You have internal free will, but you have no effective free will. You cannot carry out your free will in action because I control you. You're my puppet. Think what you want about it. You're free in that regard, right? Although I could construct a scenario in which I control your thoughts and feelings too. I won't. I'll just place you in the exoskeleton robot. You have theoretical freedom, but not effective freedom. So here's the deal. That introduces an important relation. God made us as physical beings. Did he have to do that? didn't have to because he made purely spiritual beings, the angels. In fact, all kinds of different angels, ranks upon ranks of them, right? The angels can be as different as the creatures of the earth. Lots of different kinds. If you want physical beings with effective free will, you have to grant the world free process. We have to be free to reshape the world. God can't grant you free will theoretically and then place you in a robot where the world can't respond to your freedom. So if God wants love, he has to grant freedom. But if God wants physical beings with freedom, he has to grant free process. We have to be able to reshape the world. What are the consequences of us having the capacity to reshape the world? What's that? We can create, we can destroy. First thing I would say is we can do a lot of damage. The first thing I would say is two words, crack babies. That God gives those children into our power. And the mother can take crack while she's pregnant or not. And the child will suffer the consequences of that free will. Someone else will suffer the consequences of your free will. Is that fair? Is it true? It is true. So, Phineas Gage is a really interesting case study. Do you know who Phineas Gage was? Some of you know who Phineas Gage was. Study a little bit. Phineas Gage worked on the railroad. 
and he worked with a tamping iron. So he would tamp down dynamite into the mountains and they would explode sections of mountain. Only Phineas Gage ran his tamping iron down and set off the dynamite. And this six foot solid iron tamping iron, solid iron tamping iron went through his skull. But it didn't kill him. He lived. But what changed? His personality, totally different. Wait, so you're saying if you change the physical substrate of the brain, you could change someone's personality, which is a spiritual thing? Mm -hmm. Yep, because the two interact with one another, right? What can alcohol do to somebody's sense of how, what they're thinking and feeling? And change it, right? What about drugs, LSD? Make you think you can fly, for sure, right? A little bit of coffee in the morning, clears up your grumpiness. Isn't that amazing? Right? Yeah, so our free will reshapes the world, and that reshaping has physical consequences for others. That explains one kind of thing, but it doesn't explain another kind of thing. The other kind of thing is a little more complicated. Suppose that I create physical beings that will come into existence and grow through cell reproduction. Well, if cells are going to grow, what else is possible? Cell growth, that's cancer. Cancer is cell growth, undirected, right? So if I create a physical world in which beings come into existence and grow through cell reproduction, cancer all of a sudden becomes a possibility. Well, what if I create a world in which there's going to be evolution, which will bring about these creatures to which I can give a soul. Only to make that happen, there has to be mutation. And the mutation will bring about the creation of these creatures. What else did I just make possible? Genetic defects. My cousin's daughter suffers from a rare genetic defect. She can't hardly do anything. She's beautiful. Right? There's a reason for her existence. She suffers from a rare genetic defect, and that's hard. If I'm going to create weather patterns that bring rain, what else am I going to create? That would be hurricanes, right? If the bringing about of life involves plate tectonics, then the continents are going to move, and what else is going to happen? Earthquakes are going to happen. For better or for worse, if you endow people with free will, they help create their own character. Israel receives free will from God, and they shape their own national character. St. Augustine receives free will from God, and he shapes his own moral character. Adolf Hitler receives free will from God, and he shapes the destiny of history. Human beings with free will shape their own character for better and for worse. Well, if you endow the world with free process, the world helps to shape its own character in an analogous way. Not through free will. Atoms don't have free will, but they have free process. Tectonic plates have free process. They're free to move on their own. Therefore, you will get evolution and human beings and suffering. Those are parallel issues. Pope Francis puts it this way. 
creating a world in need of development, God in some way sought to limit himself in such a way that many of the things we think of as evils, dangers, or sources of suffering are in reality part of the pains of childbirth, which he uses to draw us into the act of cooperation with the Creator. I said to one of my students once, it is possible for every situation to draw you closer to God. She thought about that for a while, and she came back to see me the next day, and she said, I don't think that's true. Because there are things in my life that haven't drawn me closer to God. And I said, grasshopper, you didn't listen to me. I didn't say everything in your life does draw you closer to God. I said everything in your life can draw you closer to God. Is there anything else you wish to tell me? She wasn't ready to continue the conversation that day. You can bet there's something cooking in there. Love requires freedom. We covered this last week. But free will is risky. Is it worth the risk of having children rather than computers? Last week, you thought that it was worth the risk. Well, creating physical beings with free will requires endowing the world with free process. The free process is risky. Is it worth the risk? Well, God, I have to tell you this. It's painful. And I have to tell you this. If you're going to write that much possibility of pain into the world your children are probably going to become discouraged. And so you're going to have to show them that even the worst of pains can be brought back to you. And what did he do in history? I told you that all of Israel's theology was based on people and events. So what did God do? One by one, he assembled the people and events that would show to us that every physical and spiritual pain that we could suffer could be drawn back into him. And that not only for our own sake and sanctification, but as a lever for other people to be made holy. One of my students said, I keep talking about my students because I love them dearly and because they've taught me so much. I said to them, I quoted paragraph 53 of the Catechism. It says, God's revelation comes in words and deeds. Why words and deeds? And my student said, because words give you something to believe in, but deeds give you a reason to believe it. And so that's what God does with our suffering. He gives us words to say, look, there's a reason to believe that all this can be drawn back into me. But you're not just going to believe my words, so I'm going to have to show you this. And showing you this in the past is probably not going to be enough. 
So I'm going to give you examples all through history who live this. And we canonized one of them yesterday, didn't we? Did you ever watch or read the story of Oscar Romero? Who said once, if they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadoran people. And he did. So he continues to show us that. If God is love, will he give us freedom? We can only do what's consistent with his nature. If God is love, will he give the world free process? If he wants children who are physical, who, who freely love him, he's going to have to. It's consistent with his nature. What if that involves a lot of suffering? Then I better show them how to bring it back to me. And I better give them a church that will teach them how to do it. And for people who need something tactile, I'm going to give them a rosary so they can pray their way into it. And for people who need music, I'm going to inspire musicians to help them walk the path of suffering love. By the way, I want you to, when you listen to Barbara's Adagio for Strings again, I want you to listen to what is the point at which they take Jesus down from the cross and place him in Mary's arms. Because that actually happens there. And it's worth listening to. Yeah? So, is suffering a product of the free process? And God says, I'm going to use it? Or is suffering a tool God puts in to use it? Instead of just answering your question, and I'm not dodging this. I want you to read paragraphs 309 to 314 of the Catechism. 309 to 314. Because it distinguishes between physical and moral evil. And the use to which God puts them. So, and I want you to answer it on both of those levels. So Hitler does these destructive things. Does God simply permit that to happen? Or does God use him as a tool to make it happen, to bring a good about? And then answer the physical evil question the same way. Okay, work on it. But it helps me to see the difference between what I'm saying and what you're hearing. So I need to think of another way to say this. Because... It's not a mistake or just a means. It's another category. And it's this other category that we have to discover. But it's this other category that if I simply give it to you, you won't remember it the same way as you will if you come up with it yourself. It's not that I'm unwilling to go there. I spend all my days teaching. I'm very willing to go there. But I write to myself a note every day. Day three, what is the goal? And every day it repeats this quotation. 
for them to own Jesus' approach to suffering and teach each other. My goal is not to, and I told you this at the beginning, but I want to say it again now before we wrap up with prayer. If I simply hand you a packet of stuff, I will have failed. But if I can teach you to think this through for yourself and illuminate one another around it, that is actually my goal. Because I think that's the task of young adulthood. But I will spend the ensuing week thinking about how do I clarify this. All right, I will. Last question. I may have the same question as you, hmm? but what has struck me was that I see very clearly the logical necessity of free will. Right. Good. Exactly. Yes. And so that's what we need to lean into. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. Okay. We're going to end with this because I know our time is up. And maybe I should have handed that out. I want you to pick up one of these on the way out today. My Life After Death. It's just a two-page article about a woman's experience of her son being murdered and what she did with it. Very helpful. Different from C.S. Lewis's experience, obviously, but lean into that. Okay. I know we didn't handle Lewis today. We'll come back to that next week. So, before we pray for next week, Hmm, yeah. Uh, A Grief Observed, Section 3. That's it. Here's a closing quote of the day before I give you the scripture. Oh, two closing quotes. One from C.S. Lewis. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve. And you find that you have excluded life itself. Lewis himself drawing this connection. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve. And you find that you have excluded life itself. This from Benedict XVI. We can try to limit suffering, to fight against it, but we cannot eliminate it. It is when we attempt to avoid suffering by withdrawing from anything that might involve hurt when we try to spare ourselves the effort and pain of pursuing truth, love, and goodness, that we drift into a life of emptiness, in which there may be almost no pain, but the dark sensation of meaninglessness and abandonment is all the greater. 
It's not by sidestepping or fleeing from suffering that we are healed, but rather by our capacity for accepting it, maturing through it, and finding meaning through union with Christ, who suffered with infinite love. Let me close with this scripture from the book of Judith. We should be grateful to the Lord our God for putting us to the test, as he did our forefathers. Recall how he dealt with Abraham and how he tried Isaac and all that happened to Jacob in Syrian Mesopotamia while he was tending the flocks of Laban, his mother's brother. Not for vengeance did the Lord put them in the crucible to try their hearts, nor has he done so with us. It is by way of admonition that he chastises those who are close to him. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to understand your approach to suffering and help us to live your approach to suffering and help us to teach the world your approach to suffering. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.